As you're being seated, I invite you to take a Bible, if you will, and turn to the fifth book of the New Testament, the book of Acts. We are continuing to look at sections from the book of Acts so that we might see a picture of what Easter-centered living and Easter-centered dying looks like. Today, we catch up with the Apostle Paul as he preaches a very unique sermon in a very unique place in Athens. What we learn from this text is that part of living an Easter-centered life means that we live lives where we share Jesus Christ with the world around us. It is a unique sermon, and we hear this sermon beginning in verse 22 of chapter 17 of Acts. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way, for as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, Paul says. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is, he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so that, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Since we're God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals, while God has overlooked the times of human ignorance. Now he commands, now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed, but others said, we will hear again about this. At that point, Paul left them, but some of them joined him and became believers, including Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the Word of God. Would you pray with me? God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together be acceptable in your sight. For you and you alone are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Even when Paul entered the city of Athens in the first century A.D., 
the glory of Athens had already passed away. The glory of classical Greece had already passed away. The Parthenon, when Paul was there, was already an ancient building. The book of Acts, right before the text that I read, tells us some things about Athens in Paul's day. And we read in the book of Acts earlier in chapter 17 that Athens was a very religious city. It was a city filled with idols. And Luke, the author of Acts, tells us that there in Athens, everyone loved to spend their time listening to and learning about the newest ideas. So then Paul comes to that city, and it's very unlike many of the other cities in which we find Paul preaching. That's why we find this sermon very different from anything else we hear Paul preaching in the book of Acts. Every time Paul went to a city, if at all possible, he would go to the Jewish community first in that city because they knew the Jewish scriptures. They knew the promises of God. They knew the promise that one day a Messiah would come. And then when he offered to them Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, they had a context to put that preaching. But Athens was a very different place for many of the cities where Paul preached. It was primarily Gentile. There were some Jews there, but it was primarily Gentile. And as Gentiles, the culture they knew, the, the religion they knew, or religions they knew, was what was popular or standard in the Greco-Roman world. So Paul had to preach a very different type of sermon to the people there in Athens. You heard the sermon. He preached it before the Areopagus. The Areopagus was the city council. And they had heard that Paul had been preaching in the marketplace there in Athens, the Agora. So they invited him before the city council to explain himself. He was preaching about these, these new gods. They thought he was preaching about two new gods, one called Jesus, one called Anastasius, which is resurrection, and they didn't understand what he was saying, but they loved to hear all the new ideas that were being produced in the Greco-Roman world. So they invited Paul to come before the city council. And Paul preached this very unusual sermon before the city council. You, you heard how he began the sermon. I hope that you see how masterful he is in preaching to that community. Because I think in this sermon, you and I have an amazing example of how we perhaps should intersect with our culture around us. Like Paul, like Paul in Athens, he is in a world that is filled with many different gods. Like Paul in Athens, he's in a world that's filled with many different paths to God, and many different spiritualities. Like Paul, we find ourselves in a culture where there are competing moralities for our attention. Again, Paul's not in a Jewish context here, so he can't say to them, well, the book of Genesis says. They don't know about the book of Genesis. They may have heard about it, probably have never read it, and it certainly wasn't authoritative for them. So he had to present 
Jesus to them in a different way than we see him presenting Jesus in other places. It's really important to know the context in which we have been called to present Jesus Christ. So he starts off his sermon by complimenting the people. He says, I know that you are extremely religious. I know that you are extremely spiritual. And again, I think that the Athenian world was a lot like our world. I don't think we are in a world filled with atheists. I think we're in a world in the West here of people who have different spiritualities. It's popular now, it's faddish now to be spiritual, but not into organized religion. So in so many ways, what Paul encountered there in Athens is exactly what we're encountering here. Paul looked at them, and he started out with some compliments. I, I, I know that you're very religious, you're very, you're very spiritual. And then he goes on to say that he sees all the shrines there in Athens. Again, in the ancient world, if you were religious, you were polytheistic. That seemed to be common sense to them. If you believed in God, you believed in the multiplicity of gods, many gods. And, of course, the Greeks and the Romans had their pantheon of gods. That Parthenon there in Greece was the temple to the goddess Athena. So Paul says, I've seen all the shrines. I'm sure he might have nodded toward the Parthenon at that point. He says, I've seen all the shrines here in your city. And he says, watch this, it's masterful. He says, I even noticed a shrine to an unknown God. Now what's going on there is that the Athenians were just hedging their bets. If they missed a God out there, as they worshiped Zeus and Aphrodite and all the other gods. If they missed a god, they put up a shrine to the unknown god. They wanted to hedge their bets. They didn't want to irritate uh, a god they didn't recognize, and they didn't want to miss out on any of the blessings that some other god out there might have for them. So they put up a shrine to an unknown god. Now, Paul wasn't endorsing that, but Paul knew he could use that as an entrance into their lives. He knew that he could talk to them in such a way, beginning where they're at, and help them get somewhere else in their spiritual life. Again, I see so many parallels between Paul's preaching here and how we might be called to present Christ to the world around us. When he brings up that shrine to the unknown God, he says... Let me tell you who the God is you don't know. And it was at that point he began to present to those Athenians the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of the prophets, the God of Jesus, the God that has revealed himself in the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. He begins telling them about the true and living God. And he tells them about this true and living God, and he says things about this true and living God, such as this God doesn't live in temples. Human beings don't need to sacrifice to this God as if to meet the needs of these gods. This is not a God who needs anything from humans, but rather this God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is a God that gives is more concerned about giving than receiving. And you heard Paul say, this God is close to all of us. This God that I'm telling you about is close to 
all of his creatures, and we know the gods of the Greeks were different from that. If you know anything about the Greco-Roman world, if you know anything about ancient Greece, if you've watched any of those cheesy movies that were made in the 1950s, you know something about the nature of those Greco-Roman gods. I was in Greece recently with a group of you folks, and um, we saw Mount Olympus from a distance, and we saw the clouds there top Mount Olympus. And of course, the Greeks in the ancient world, they all thought that the gods resided way up there, way out there atop Mount Olympus. They occasionally would interfere in the lives of humans. That usually didn't end well. You may remember the story of Ulysses. You may remember the story of Jason and the Argonauts. Usually those gods were petty and they interfered in the lives of the people, and it was always a bad interference. Well, here's Paul saying, the God I'm telling you about is a God that gives, a God that doesn't have to dwell in temples made of human hands, a God that is very close to you. And that's where he says, in him we live and move and have our being, for we too are his offspring. So he's saying to these people, you know that God is the creator and there's only one God. I want you to come to know this one God. I want you to move beyond being an offspring of God. You know, it's really not true theologically. Go back, read the first chapter of John, and after you read the first chapter of John, just read the rest of the New Testament. It's not true theologically, and we, we, we say it a lot, everyone is God's ch- child, That's not true. The Bible never proclaims that. Everyone is God's creation. Everyone is an offspring of God. But particularly here on Mother's Day, we know that there's a difference between someone that just creates you, someone that gives birth to you, and a father or a mother. You know, to be a child to someone should imply that you're in a relationship with that person. You, you can be created by someone you've never met. But if you're a child to that parent, a child to that father, a child to that mother, and she is a mother to you or he is a father to you, that implies a relationship. So there's something beyond just being created by God. There's something beyond just being an offspring of God. That's entering into a family relationship with this God who is close. That is entering into a relationship, an intimacy, as you are adopted into the family now. And that's a big part of the New Testament's teaching. Through Christ, we can be adopted into the family. We can be adopted into a closer relationship with the one who created us And then we can start living as a child of God. Then Paul begins to make personal application. Do you notice that in his sermon? After he's presented the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the prophets, the God of Jesus, the God who has revealed himself to the human race, he says to those people that this God has allowed humans to live in ignorance for centuries. But now, Paul says, now something new has happened. Now something different has occurred in human history, and that time of joyful ignorance has passed, and Paul calls them to repentance. 
they have to turn away from Zeus, Athena, Aphrodite, Dionysius. The list goes on and on and on. They have to turn. They have to change their mind and change their heart and change their direction. You know, the older we get, the harder it is to repent. It's hard as we get older and older to say we've been doing something wrong for five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. So we get ingrained in our behaviors and we get blinded to whatever it is God might be calling us to do. And God calls us and calls us and calls us to repent. That's what you see happening in this text here. He calls the people to repent. That's the personal application. Now he, he alluded to Jesus here. He talked about Jesus and the resurrection. He talked about the one that God has appointed to judge the human race. And he says that man that has been appointed to judge the human race has been attested because he's been raised from the dead. So that's pointing to Jesus. But you notice in this sermon, Paul knows that before he ever can talk to them about Jesus Christ, he has to talk to them about God. You know, once you decide there is a God, the next logical question is, what is this God like? What does this God want? What does this God will? What does this God desire? How does this God act? You know, it's not just enough to believe in God. We have a culture around us that believes in God as a supreme being, as the force, as the man upstairs. The list goes on. You know, we hear people say, well, I believe in God. Well, the book of James says the devil does too. And that doesn't benefit Satan. It's not enough to believe in God. What Paul is preaching to the people here in Athens is you've got to let go of those gods, those other gods, the gods of your own making, the gods of your imagination, and receive the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the prophets, and Jesus, the God who has spoken the God who has revealed himself. And that's why Paul has to start here. He can't start talking about the Old Testament with these people in Athens because they wouldn't know what he's talking about. He has to get them to God first, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then, then he can start moving them toward Jesus Christ. Here is Paul preaching to a world filled with spiritualities, plural, He's preaching to a very religious culture. Uh, we're in a culture that loves to be spiritual but not into organized religion. Usually when I hear somebody say that, they're spiritual but not into organized religion, what I hear them saying is that they like being spiritual. They just don't want to bother with, bother with any of the rest of us people. They don't just do it on their own personal, private, individual way. They're spiritual. But yeah, other people can complicate their spiritual life. So there's lots of spiritualities. There are lots of ways of being spiritual. We believe in God, but we don't stop there. We believe in God who has revealed himself, who has spoken, who has made some declaration, who has told us some things, and who has offered us Jesus Christ. That's why when we say God, we mean some things very specific. When the world around us says God, they may not mean things very specific. These Greeks did not like hearing about judgment or resurrection. They were so spiritual, they could not accept the resurrection of the body. So they scoffed at Paul at this point. Some said, we'll hear you, we'll hear you later. Come back and say some more. 
We don't know how it ended for Paul here in Athens. But when I look at this text and I try to pull something out of this text to help us with this culture around us, I end with three short applications. One, we should do like Paul and begin where the people are. Again, he didn't talk about the Hebrew faith. He didn't talk about the Old Testament. He talked about where they were religiously. And he's helping them to move from their various popular spiritualities to receiving the God of the Old Testament. Paul never changed his message, but he changed his approach, depending on his audience. The second thing is, obviously, Paul believes, as he's speaking before the city council here in Athens, that all religions are not created equal. I know in our culture, it's popular to think all opinions are created equal, all religions are created equal, and we have no right to say anything about any other's chosen path. Well, if Paul believed that, he'd have never left Tarsus. But here he is in Athens, going up against the culture, telling them about a God that they have deemed to be a strange God. There are a lot of ways to be spiritual. We're in an age that has made truth subjective, and we've made a lot of that which is subjective into truth, but Paul believed that there was such thing as truth, and he was proclaiming it there. And the last thing that I take from this text, because I look at the results of Paul's preaching here, is that we should never despise the day of small beginnings. You know, according to the text, there are only two people named who accepted Paul's message. It says there were others, but we don't know how many others. There was Dionysius, the Areopagite. In other words, Dionysius, a member of the city council, he accepted Paul's message. By the way, today, in Greece, in Athens, Dionysius is the patron saint of Athens. And then there's a woman mentioned, we know nothing about her, Damaris. But Dionysius, the Areopagite, and Damaris, they received what Paul had to say. So this is a meager beginning of the church in Athens. Not like we saw with Paul in Thessalonica, not like we saw with Paul in Berea. This was a meager beginning. But you know, if you go to Greece today, they're very proud of the fact, don't know how accurate it is, they're very proud of the fact that 97% of their people are Christian, Greek Orthodox. So what began as a very small movement there in Athens grew across the country of Greece and beyond. We should not despise the day of small beginnings. I've pastored all sizes of churches. My first two churches were very small. They were so small they've now gone away. They have faded away, the first two churches I pastored. But it was in those early days of planting seeds in those very difficult places where I was able to be in ministry with only a few people. And like I said, both of my first two churches, now that I pastored, have faded away. That's happening a lot in our culture. But the Lord gave me a hymn back in those days, and it still kind of rings in my spirit. It's an old Southern gospel song. And you, you may not know it unless you hang out with the Gaithers or something. But I want you to sing it in a few moments as if you know it. And I believe that the Spirit can plant something in your spirit that can be helpful. It's, it's a hymn, it's a Southern Gospel hymn written in 1924. 
And the verses, I think, are very powerful, but the chorus is what continues to ring in my mind little as much when God is in it. Labor not for wealth or fame. There's a crown and you can win it if you go in Jesus' name. Don't despise the days of small beginnings. Just plant seeds. You may never see those seeds grow or come to fruition. Just plant seeds in the lives of the people around you because little is much when God is in it. If you know, if you're one of those people in our culture that's spiritual, I hope that you know the God of the Bible the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the prophets, Jesus, the early church. Hope that you are not just spiritual and you have an amorphous God. Hope you're specific about your God. If, you, if you're someone who knows the God of the Bible, I hope that you will surrender all of your life to him and not to a God of your own imagination, but to him as revealed to us. Hear him speaking his truth does, and God cannot lie. So if you are a Christ follower, I, I invite all of us who are Christ followers to surrender, to surrender all of our lives to Him, not just have a religious department to our lives. But let's be living sacrifices to Him. Amen.